1: Good morning, afternoon, or evening, SoCal sports fans, whenever you may be. This is your Mob Squad of One LA Rams podcast, where we share thoughts on what's happening with our beloved Rams, with a sprinkling of other SoCal sports segments of interest. We appreciate you taking the time to give us a listen. On this episode, February 15th, 2021, saying goodbye to Jared Goff. Trevor Bauer and the Dodger way, J.J. Watt, and this week's Sports Peeve, the second guy in. The first thing I wanted to talk about today is the Matthew stafford Jared Goff trade. And I'm going to focus a little bit more on Jared Goff right now. Another time, I will talk to you about what Stafford will be bringing to this team. But I think it's only fair that we spend a few moments thinking about what Goff did for this franchise and what the future holds for him. Now, I'm probably actually clearly in the minority. I've been in Jared Goff's camp for the most part. I see him as an extremely talented 26-year-old quarterback with almost 70 games of NFL experience. Now, he's had his ups and downs. He has his shortcomings. But I clearly think... Uh, the Detroit Lions have every reason to be uh, excited about him coming on board. And actually, if you compare the first five seasons of uh, Stafford and Goff, uh, it's it's actually pretty striking. They're very similar. I think in a lot of categories, Goff has the edge, certainly in wins. Um, but that's not to say Goff did have the shortcomings, and it was time for the Rams to move on. I, I think the, his biggest problem is is the perception the perception many of the experts and announcers and henceforth the fans have of him, and and it's accentuated by the fact, it's, it's magnified by the fact that he can be a very clumsy-looking player. Jared Goff can throw three very clumsy-looking interceptions and have a very clumsy-looking fumble, whereas a Tom Brady or an Aaron Rodgers or a Drew Brees can throw... Three interceptions and you barely know it even happened. Especially if Troy Aikman's the announcer, you can see, you can see Brady throw three interceptions and not even know they happened because uh, it was the receiver's fault, it was the offensive lineman's fault, it was the wind's fault, and he just looks amazing in throwing three interceptions. And that's clearly not the case with Goff and he has ugly interceptions. But the results are generally the same in many cases. He, he's had a 500-yard game. He's had games where he's carried the team on his back, I think mostly back to the uh, the Thursday night game against the Vikings. If you watch that game and, and you tell me that Jared Goff does not have the potential to be a very successful quarterback in any system, I, I just don't think you're paying attention. Does he need a new start? Absolutely. Has he had his his moments where he's looked horrible? Absolutely. Does he have potentially 10 years of growth ahead of him with a lot of excess and many more wins and possibly playoff wins? I would say so. Now, I do think Stafford brings something that Goff doesn't have, and the main thing he has is it's not necessarily mobility. It's the ability to move a little bit, and still be able to make strong throws within the pocket or extending plays for a moment, weird arm angles, under pressure, and making great throws. That was where Goff was weak. Now, Goff's actually more mobile. Goff rolls out more than... You won't see Stafford rolling out as much as Goff. Stafford is more of a drop-back quarterback than Goff is. But when he gets that pressure, he's going to be able to... Take two steps to the left and make a great throw. Two steps up, make a great throw. Whereas that's where Goff struggled. One other thing about Goff that we sometimes forget is he's extremely durable, more durable than Stafford, in fact. So we can only cross our fingers and hope Stafford stays as healthy as Goff did and answers the bell as often as Goff did if we're going to hope he's going to carry this franchise forward like most of us are. Another time, I'll look closer into how Stafford fits into this offense and why we should be very hopeful. A lot of excitement about the Dodgers' new signing, Trevor Bauer, joining the pitching staff. There are legitimate questions about whether the Dodgers overpaid for his services. I'm not going to get into that today. If he contributes to another World Series championship, uh, that question will answer itself for us. I mean, the guys want to say, "Young, uh, he he brings a lot to the table. Very talented, no question about that." What I'm concerned about is how he's going to fit into this perfect little Dodgers world that they've developed over so many decades. The thing I'm most worried about is specifically regarding his social media history. In his presence on Instagram, Twitter, and the like. For those of you that are unaware, uh, in the past, he has seemingly mocked the LGBTQ community on Twitter by posting that he identifies as a 12-year-old. He's taken shots at Obama and George Soros, the typical right-wing attacks that we've heard over and over again for the last four, eight, 12 years. So it's pretty clear where he stands politically and socially. And you have to be concerned how that's going to resonate with a generally progressive L.A. Dodger fan base. We also need to mention that there's two women who have accused him of harassment over the years. If the Dodgers are bringing in Kurt uh, Shelley Jr., into a progressive L.A. Dodger environment here in L.A. County. Now, another thing that old-school Dodger fans are struggling with is his little premiere video that he released announcing that he was signed with the Dodgers. Someone I know posted a, a letter to the L.A. Times that was printed. I'll read from it briefly here. This writer says that the video was one of the most self-serving shows I have ever seen. Multiple times he features his name on the back of a jersey while never mentioning any former team. He thanks no one who helped him along the way to his big contract while ignoring his LA roots by not mentioning Hart High or UCLA. The writer goes on to compare it to Jock Peterson's wonderful letter that he wrote on his exit from the Dodgers, who... If you didn't know, Jock Peterson will be playing for the Chicago Cubs next year. For those of you who missed Jock's letter, I encourage you to go find it. It is really well-written, heartfelt. He talks about all the players that impacted his career, his family, uh, how the Dodgers treated him. It's really a great letter. And, And as the writer to the LA Times points out, it stands in contrast to... Trevor Bauer's video. The writer has a point. Old school Dodger fans, this just doesn't sit well with them. It's just not the way old school fans want their players to roll. On the other hand, this is the type of thing that younger fans really appreciate and really gravitate towards. I really don't have a problem with it, although I can appreciate his point of view. The bigger problem is what I stated earlier, his social media history and his willingness to share fairly right-wing positions. It'll be interesting to see how that pans out. My guess is he's going to tone it down. He's going to get some coaching from the Dodger brass and his management team on how to fit in better in his new environment. There seems to be a lot of excitement across the NFL regarding J.J. Watt and his new status as a free agent. I've even seen some talk of him joining the Rams. Some comments on that. Watt is a defensive end and a 3-4. If you were to come to the Rams, obviously J.J. Watt joining any team is going to be an improvement. Your team is going to get better. But what you have to keep in mind is... Watt would probably supplant Michael Brockers in the Rams' base defense. Michael Brockers is a very good player and extremely stout against the run. So the question I would ask is, how much better are the Rams getting by adding J.J. Watt? The improvement would not be as significant as most people think. Now there's a lot of variables. Morgan Fox, another defensive end very likely leaving the team as a free agent. Leonard Floyd, who generates pass rush from the edge. If the Rams were to lose that, would uh, J.J. Watt compensate for it? And how much better or worse are we against the run? That's the biggest question for me. I also have a concern about Watt and the way he carries himself. I'm no expert on him, but in the times I have watched him, he seems like one of those players that likes to draw attention to himself on the field and on the sideline. And I'm just not sure how that would carry over with his Brethren Ram defenders. The Rams have developed a very good culture of team first. And I'm not going to slam J.J. Watt because I don't know enough about him. But there's there's a uh, eye test that he doesn't pass with me as far as that goes. I'm also unsure how the new D.C. Morris is going to use his defensive lineman. He says he's going to stick with the 3-4 instead of his traditional 4-3. So maybe Watt, uh, if if there's some kind of hybrid 3-4-4-3 that he's going to run, maybe J.J. Watt fits in perfectly with that. I'm just going to say I think the Rams have bigger concerns, and I think there's other players that they could bring in that would be more impactful. There's also the other side of it, though, is that Watt may be willing to come in at a very low salary. If that's the case, allowing us to keep Michael Brockers, bring him on. I call this segment my weekly rant regarding my sports pet peeve. This week, it's one that reared its ugly head during the Super Bowl once again. It seems to be accepted, For college and NFL referees to throw an unsportsmanlike conduct flag on the second guy. Not the first guy, not the first guy that grabbed a face mask or swatted a helmet, but the second guy. The second guy that retaliates, that had his face mask grabbed or his head slapped. That's the guy that retaliates and he gets the flag. And everybody repeats it over and over. Oh, they're always going to get the second guy in. That's always the case. And it just seems to be accepted. Is this because of training? Is this a cultural thing? Is it because the referees never see the first guy? I don't quite understand. And, and if it's because referees never see the first guy, and they turn their head and see the second guy, then that should be reviewable. By the guys at the NFL offices. Because it's just not fair for a guy to take a swipe at another guy. The second guy retaliates and gets 15 yards marched off against him. And sometimes even thrown out of a game. If it's training, then improve the training. I mean, we we don't do that on the streets, right? Where... If I take a swing at someone and the guy swings back, he's going to jail and I'm not. It's not the way it works. I see this over and over and over again. The announcers are perfectly fine with it. The referees seem to be perfectly fine with it. The most recent case, of course, was Brady, the honey badger. I'm going to call him the honey badger because I have trouble pronouncing his real name. That was clearly instigated by Brady The one incident I'm referring to, the Honey Badger and Brady got into it. The result was a 15-yard penalty against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. That's insane that decisions like that could impact a world championship. And I see it almost every game. Second guy in, throw the flag. I don't get it. We need to fix it. Looking forward to next week, speed receivers in the NFL draft, who steps up for the Rams next year, an update on the Lakers and Clippers.